This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an. BBC Sounds Music Radio Podcasts This is In Our Time from BBC Radio 4 and this is one of more than a thousand episodes you can find on BBC Sounds and on our website. If you scroll down the page for this edition you can find a reading list to go with it. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello, what is happiness and how do we live a good life? Those are questions posed by Aristotle two and a half thousand years ago in what became known as the Nicomachean Ethics. His audience then were the elite in Athens, as if they knew how to lead their lives well, they could better rule the lives of others. And his approach to answering these questions has fascinated philosophers ever since, in very different times. With me to discuss Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics are Sophia Connell, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Birkbeck University of London, Roger Crisp, Director of the Oxford Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics, Professor of Moral Philosophy and Tutor in Philosophy at St. Anne's College, University of Oxford, and Angie Hobbs, Professor of the Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Angie Hobbs, who was Aristotle and what was his reputation in Athens? Aristotle was born in 387 BCE in Stagara in northern Greece. His father was the doctor at the court of the Macedonian kings. He was a best friend of Amentus II, who was grandfather of Alexander the Great. And Aristotle seems to have inherited his father's love of biology. When he was 17, Aristotle comes to Athens to study with Plato at the Academy, and he stays there for 20 years. And he's hugely respected within the Academy, even though he and Plato disagree on quite a few things. They're they're close friends, and Plato has a lot of respect for him, and he becomes far more than a student. He becomes a, a major researcher and in charge of the library there. Then when Plato dies, in 347, there's a wave of anti-Macedonian feeling in Athens because of the rise of the Macedonian Empire. And Aristotle feels that it's prudent to to leave. And he goes off for about five years in Assos, uh, on the coast of modern Turkey and in Lesbos, conducting his philosophical researches and a lot of uh, biological investigations. But then he's invited by Philip II of Macedon to go back to Macedonia to be a tutor to Alexander the Great. He does that. And then finally, in 335, he comes to Athens again, sets up his own lyceum, uh, his own research and uh, teaching centre. But then in 323, after Alexander's death, yet another wave of anti-Macedonian feeling. He says, I don't want the Athenians to commit a second crime against philosophy, thinking, of course, of having them having put uh, Socrates to death. And he goes off to Euboea, uh, the island of Euboea. He dies there a year later. So hugely respected by intellectuals in Athens, very mixed feelings about him amongst the Athenians in general. Well, it doesn't get better than that, Angie. Thank you very much. Uh, now, the work we're discussing, why is it called what it's called? Uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. Well, Aristotle's father and his son were both called Nicomachus, so it's possible that he's dedicating uh, this to them. Uh, it's also more likely, I think, that uh, Nicomachus may have edited it it after Aristotle's death. So we're not really sure about that name. Aristotle himself, when he's referring to the ethics in another work, the politics, he doesn't call it that. He just calls it ta ethica, the things to do with character. And the actual title, Nicomachean Ethics, isn't used, I think, till about 170, 175, common era. What we do know is that it's lecture notes. Of the works of Aristotle that have survived, only one is as written for publication. The rest are all lecture notes. It's condensed. It's elliptical. It's knotty. Uh, There are a lot of ambiguities. There are quite a few corruptions in the text. It takes quite a lot of concentration. 
Which you, you've given it over the years. <laughs> Indeed. Um, the other thing we definitely know about it, because Aristotle tells us, is that the ethics is written as a, a sort of the first part of a two-part work. It's to lead on to the politics, because he thinks ethics is a branch of politics. It's time I turn to, to Roger Chris. Roger, can you tell us what the ethics covers? Well, as Angie said, ethics means the things to do with character. So that's the overall topic. And the structure of the work is slightly odd, but essentially, I think, coherent. So it's divided into ten books. first book is about the question we're trying to answer, which is, what's the highest good? What's happiness? And the answer is, it's got something to do with virtue. So that takes us into book two, which is about the virtues. And after a bit more on the virtues in book three, he starts talking about individual virtues. So I think it's important to remember that a lot of the ethics is taken up with portraits of what it's like to live the virtuous life. That takes us to the end of book five. In book six, he talks about the intellectual virtues. In seven, he discusses some puzzles about weakness of will and throws in some chapters on pleasure. And we then have what could have been a separate treatise on friendship, which got sewn in, as it were, either by him or by Nicomachus or by somebody else. And then finally in book 10, well, he goes back to pleasure, and then he goes back to the issue of happiness, taking a possibly a slightly different view on it than the one in the earlier books. What was he intending to do with these lectures? Who was, I mean, we know who was intent, he was preaching them or distributing them to the intellectual elite of Athens, but what did he hope would be the result of this? He tells us his hope is that the lectures will help his listeners live happy lives, and these will be lives of virtue. Many of them, as you say, are from the elite all over what we would call Greece, and then he would have hoped that these people would go away, live happy lives in their own cities, take part in the politics of their own cities, and enable their fellow citizens to live happy and virtuous lives. You brought in virtue. Virtue is very, as important as happiness, isn't it? Completely, yes. Mm. You don't get one without the other. You don't get one without the other. Can we turn to you, Sophia? In what way does he build on uh, Plato's work? He develops certain ideas in Plato. Of course, Plato was heavily influenced by Socrates, and what we hear about Socrates in Plato's work is that the unexamined life is not worth living, and certainly Aristotle agrees with this, and with virtue having something to do with knowledge, with living thoughtfully. Uh, so he's developing that. Another thing that he picks up on and develops from Plato is the idea that we have three sets of motivations within us. Plato talks about the soul being divided between appetites, spirit, and reasoning. And broadly, Aristotle is in agreement and believes with Plato that it's a harmony of these parts of soul that is a huge part of what gives us a sense of well-being and makes our life go well. We need to align these motivations within us. If we don't, we'll feel conflicted, and that is a major source of unhappiness. Can you, uh, do we see it with a direct line from Socrates, Plato, Aristotle? Can you say something about that direct line, if it was as direct a line as I'm implying? Yes, so I mean, there are three major figures in the development of ethics in Western philosophy, and Plato is obviously influenced strongly by Socrates, although he is also in dialectic with Socrates. He's disagreeing with Socrates about various things. And the same is true of Aristotle. Aristotle's advance, in a way, is that although he's in agreement and on the same page in some ways with Plato, he is also arguing with him and developing from there ideas that are very different, um, which I can tell you about. So there's two things, I think, really different and innovative in the Nicomachean ethics. The first is that he disagrees with Plato that you should reform the way people breed and have families. Uh, so Plato in the Republic says, we need a community of people. Nobody belongs to anyone else. Uh, your children aren't your children. They're everybody's children. And Aristotle disagrees vehemently with this and believes that 
ethics is centered in the affections you have for those people around you, include often include your family members, people in your immediate community who you have close ties with. He doesn't want to break down the family, and family is going to be a part of the polis, and the polis is necessary for happiness. The other one is that he says there isn't, if we're doing practical philosophy, we want to learn how to live well. It's no use talking about the good, the form of the good, or the idea of the good, this completely abstract object. We don't know whether it exists, and we can't, even if we did find it, how would we apply that to everyday life? So Aristotle says what we need is actually to talk about how the good is said in many ways. The good is said in many ways because the good is an attribute of different things. What we really want to find out about in ethics is the human good, not the good in the abstract. And that is where he pushes forward in book one to discover the human good. Can I come back to you, Angie? The final goal in human design action is eudaimonia. What is it? Yeah, literally eudaimonia means living under the guardianship of a beneficent guardian spirit. And in Aristotle, he defines it in book one as an activity of the psyche, of the the soul, in accordance with excellence. It's um, because he's particularly interested, as we've been hearing, in the rational part of the human psyche. He's particularly interested in our rational excellences, which are going to be varied. Why is he particularly interested in that? Does he he say at one stage that we are the only... Species, plants don't have reason, animals it, don't have reason, exactly. human beings it, have reason. That's the distinction. Exactly, exactly. It's, uh, hu- it's what distinguishes us in Aristotle's eyes from animals and, and plants that we can reason. It's going to become a bit more complicated in Book 10, but that, that's the gist. Now, so what we can say immediately is that it's mainly an objective concept. It's not particularly about feeling happy, though Aristotle's keen that we do feel happy, but it's, it's much more to do with the actualization of our faculties, the fulfillment of our potential. You can fl- flourish, you can possess eudaimonia, even if you're feeling pretty miserable that day. Uh, so that's something. He's also grounding it in human psychology and human biology. Again, I think we see the influence of his his father there. He's trying to work with the grain. He's trying to make this a human good fit for humans. Though he does relent a little bit and he says that, yes, it is mainly about the fulfilment of our best faculties, particularly our rational faculties, which are going to be connected with our, our intellectual and ethical virtues. But we do also need some external goods. He's a bit more kindly than Plato in that respect. He allows us a few external goods because he says it's going to be very difficult to fulfil your potential if you're really poor or absolutely deprived of shelter or whatever. Thank you. Roger, is he talking about improving the individual or improving society as a whole? The ethics is certainly concerned with the individual. He's explicit about that, and as Angie said, at the end of the ethics, he leads us into the politics, which is a separate set of lectures, or for us, another book. So the aim is to speak to individuals in the ethics, but because the the emphasis he places on the virtues, and because he thinks that the exercise of the virtues is carried out most effectively within politics, he is encouraging the individuals to whom he's speaking to further the well-being or eudaimonia of their fellow citizens. Did he stand up and give these lectures? Did he attract people to come and listen to these lectures? What effect Do we know anything about the effect they might have had at the time? Andrew? Well, one possible clue is that we know that something like Plato's Republic, for instance, was copied quite a lot, pretty quickly, and distributed around the Greek world. It ends up in the library in Alexandria not that long after Plato's death. With Aristotle, it seems to be different. There are his papyrus rolls in his library. When he dies, he leaves them to Theophrastus, his friend and student, uh, who then leaves them to somebody else. And eventually, they seem to end up in, in modern Turkey, but in a cellar for about 150 years because there's a threat of them being destroyed. And... That's partly why Aristotle's texts are so corrupted, because the original papyri was sort of in a cellar, kind of in very adverse conditions. 
So it seems to me, and then eventually they are rescued and, and sent back to Athens, but it looks as if people are not copying out Aristotle's lecture notes and distributing them around um, Athens and elsewhere in Greece in the way that we know Plato's works were. Is there any way, can I, left field question, Roger, and if uh, we get nowhere, it doesn't matter, because I, 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 question intrigues me. How come that in that small space, in that limited time, so many of the greatest philosophers lived and had such an influence what, in what was going on? How, is, how did that, those fusions take place? Well, I'm sure that the full story would be quite complicated, but I do think it had a lot to do with Socrates. I think there was something about Socrates which really uh, was inspiration. The man going around asking people questions about... Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So I think he really did get it going. And if anybody hasn't read anything by Plato, I would recommend they look at the apology or the, the defence of Socrates. And that helps, I think, if you're trying to understand the Nicomachean ethics, because as I see it... To some extent, Plato and Aristotle were continuing the Socratic project. In the Apology, it looks as if Socrates seriously believed that the only thing that can make you happy is virtue. And that means you're secure because nobody can take your virtue away if you are virtuous. It also means there's no need to do anything wrong for the sake of getting money or power or anything like that because it wouldn't, those things wouldn't be worth having. Can you develop what he means by virtue? And, and you used the word excellence uh, before, which I think is quite appropriate as a translation for the Greek word arete. But often when these three philosophers are talking about excellence, they mean what we would call moral excellence. But there is a, a puzzle in the Nicomachean Ethics which arises at the end of the book because all the way along he seems to have been saying, well, if you want to be happy, you should live the life of virtue in the moral sense. But then towards the end of the book he says, oh, actually, maybe what you should do is contemplate and think and retreat from society and construct arguments and so on. And some people have seen that as making the book, the book broken-backed, but I suspect myself that what he's saying is here's another way in which you can exercise excellence and you have to make a judgment on whether it's the practical life or the intellectual life that's for you. Sophia, what, um, what does he see as the function of humans? In book two, Aristotle seeks the function of a human being which has struck people as rather an odd endeavour. The reason he's doing this is because he's trying to specify more clearly what eudaimonia is. Because at this point, everyone, he's found out that the many and the wise agree that the end of all our aims is eudaimonia. This is what the human good is. But they disagree about what kind of life that would be like. Is it the life of pleasure? Is it the life of honor? Or is it the life of wisdom? To try and discover what eudaimonia is, he has to look at what a human being is. And then he sets out a broader sketch of living beings. And very broadly, there are certain capacities that three sets of living beings have. Plants have the capacity to nourish themselves. Animals add in this perceptual capacity. But only human beings have logos, reason. And he doesn't mean that animals don't think in their own ways to figure out what to do. But it's humans that have a very special way of thinking, whereby they try to figure out what the best thing to do is. And this is part of what it is to be human. An animal doesn't have this capacity. An animal doesn't know right from wrong. An animal can't be virtuous. They can't be vicious either. But human beings have this space of reasons whereby they form their own values and they act within those values thoughtfully. And so he locates what it is to be a human being. And just like if you locate the function of an instrument, a tool, you can find out if that tool functions, if that tool is excellent, if it's a good tool. If you locate the function of a human, then you can find out if it's functioning well, if it's a good human. Andrew, I would like to know more about that particular subject, how, how to be human. It's, it's quite a big question. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah, well, as we've been hearing from Roger and Sophia, that there are different kinds of rational excellence in Aristotle's book. And if we want to develop the um, excellences of character, uh, then we need what he calls practical wisdom, phronesis. And then there's also this thing called theoria, contemplation of immutable and uh, invariable truths which he doesn't really return to until book 10. What he concentrates on for most of the ethics is phronesis and what's its role in achieving the virtues. The virtues are defined as mean points between excess and deficiency in respect of either feeling or action. So the idea is you use your practical wisdom to sort of moderate your responses to circumstances. And initially, you have to build up your character by just simply repeating the correct actions through habituation. You achieve virtue through habituation. So that's how you make progress. Exactly. That's how you make progress. You just keep on and on doing the correct thing. And eventually, you'll come to understand why it's the correct thing. And that understanding as Sophia was saying, is, is going to be what secures, what grounds your virtue. How are you sure that you're doing the correct thing? Uh, well, this is where it can get a bit circular because you, you, the test is what the, the good man, the sound man would be doing. Uh, and that, you look to that person as your exemplar. In, in one sense, it's quite an empowering theory because it makes our character up to us. It's, it's not in the lap of whimsical gods. It's up to us to develop our character. On the other hand, it's quite a tough doctrine because he's saying your character's up to you, but beyond a certain point, you can't alter your character. However, even when you've settled your character, even when you've got a settled disposition, you can't just put your feet up. You've still got to go on actualizing your reason and your rational potential every day. Eudaimonia, flourishing, and Aritair or excellence, they're lifelong projects. They don't stop. They're activities, and they don't stop. Can we, de- Roger, can we develop the idea of the mean please yes i think the mean has a lot more going for it than people have thought over the centuries it's been the butt of lots of jokes because people think it's just a doctrine of moderation moderation was a big thing for the uh, in athens and it, just saying to somebody oh be moderate in everything is slightly absurd i mean you wouldn't say that to a serial killer who's wondering you know how many people they should kill That's a slightly so extreme example isn't it? <laughs> But I, and I think it's quantitative. So the uh, the person who's courageous or brave will indeed feel the right amount of fear, if it's required. Um, maybe none at all. And somebody who's cowardly will tend to feel too much fear, and so on. And then there's a kind of insensitivity where you don't feel enough fear. But I think it's important to recognise it's not just quantities that are coming into this. I think Aristotle's description of the virtues as means actually constitutes the best account of the virtues that we have. What he'd seen is that human life can be separated into separate spheres. For example, to do with how much money you have and what you do with it. Certain emotions that you feel like fear or anger. And there's a right way to act and to feel in these spheres. So the generous person will be the person who gives away the right amount of money... They'll also give it to the right people at the right time for the right reasons and so on. Whereas the the mean or stingy person won't do that. Okay, So you're mean or stingy by not doing what the generous person would do. And you're wasteful or prodigal if you give away your money to the wrong people or at the wrong times and so on. And he's quite clear, actually, in his discussion of generosity that very often you can have both vices. Because if you give all your money away you're prodigal then somebody comes along who needs it you haven't got any anymore so you're mean yes i I completely agree with what roger was saying it's it's an objective mean but it's objective relatively to us to our situation and to our context isn't it that's what makes it it's relative to our situation that's what you know but it's not relative to us in terms of how far along the path of virtue we are i mean there's a right way to do it. exactly exactly yes it's not it's not up to us to decide, you know, subjectively whether no. we've got it right or wrong. But the mean point will not necessarily be the arithmetically middle point. The mean point between 2 and 10 is arithmetically 6, but that might 
not be the right number for you in terms of what you need to eat if you're an athlete and you might need to go much nearer to 10 if you want to you know lose a bit of weight you might want to go nearer to two so it's objective but it's relative to our individual circumstances yes and so it might, it might mean, be worth adding one thing which is that it doesn't seem to work with all the virtues especially well mm. particularly justice so some people think that Aristotle started as a botanist and he seems, certainly seems to have liked categorising things and he liked theories. The mean was, this idea of the mean was around in Athens at the time in, in, in medicine and other spheres. So he wanted to get it into his theory and he did it very successfully. But then he, ten- he seems to think, well, if it explains generosity and explains courage, it'll explain, for example, justice. And it seems not to do that. Because though there is a sphere of life concerned with justice, you can't find a particular action or a particular feeling that's governed by that virtue. Zvea, um the wisdom you acquire, is it practical or theoretical or both? Can you tell us uh, what the, as it were, almost end result of it is? Most of the ethics is occupied with explaining situations that require practical wisdom, phrenesis. And in book six, he gives us more explanation and uh, detail about these practical wisdom phrenesis under the heading of intellectual virtues. There are character virtues on the one hand, which we've been hearing about all up until now, like generosity and courage. And then there are intellectual virtues um, like wisdom. But it turns out, even though we hadn't heard much detail about phrenesis yet, that it was required for us to be for any of the virtues. So to be virtuous, you must act and feel the right things. But on top of that, you have to have practical wisdom. You have to have decided to do the right thing using this capacity, this intellectual virtue. Even in the original definition of virtue, he expresses it in terms of deciding to do the right thing based on reason and based on the type of reasoning that the practically wise person would undertake. The difference between that and theoretical wisdom is that in this process of deliberation, you have to understand the particulars very well. You have to have a sensitivity to particular situations, particular feelings, how you how this particular action will affect your well-being and the well-being of others. Um, every single situation will be different. Angie, just for the <coughs> sake of listeners, uh, one of whom is myself. Do you have any sympathy with people listening to this programme now I think, doesn't this apply to a different world? I, I think the basics actually are very user-friendly. He, he's saying that we all want to flourish, to feel eudaimonia. He has an argument which some of us are persuaded by him. Others may not be that our eudaimonia is achieved through the best possible fulfilment of our es- essentially human faculties, particularly our rational faculties, which, as we've been hearing from Sophia, lead us to both the ethical and the intellectual virtues. So he's he's saying this is we need to understand what a human being is like and how human biology and psychology works before we can know what the human good is. I find that quite appealing. Now, yes, when you get into the details of how does practical reasoning work, where I think many people today might take issue isn't so much with the technicality of it, but in the fact that in his notion of eudaimonia, he has the notion of one human ideal, which we find out from the politics is basically the ideal of an adult freeborn male. And there is therefore then a hierarchy of different levels, if you like, of flourishing and virtue going down from that eudaimonia. And according to Aristotle, and again, he says this more clearly in the politics, women just can't actualize their reason well enough to get to the top. Mentally disabled people, he uh, sadly does not think capable of much eudaimonia. And then, very unfortunately, he has, he has a category of natural slaves, people he thinks who are born without the rational capacities to direct their own lives. Now, I imagine most of us, even if we're attracted to an ethics of flourishing and virtue as I am, would take issue with this notion of a single hierarchy. And we would want to say, no, hang on, it's not the good, it's a good. There are different kinds of a good life. Roger, um, I'm not trying to do with, as a male. To, 
<laughs> one male to another, we'll bash away as we can. Um, how far do you think the virtue that you end up with is something that you inherited more than something you can study? Studying and practicing, yeah. Yeah. Well, it has, yeah. I mean, ideally, you will attend Aristotle's lectures and you'll believe his conclusions. And then you will habituate yourself into doing the right actions and feeling the right feelings. You may get some help from teachers along the way. He's quite open about the fact that it's a matter of chance whether you'll be in a position to do that, as, as Angie said. For example, even if you are a male, but you're not very well off, that means there'll be certain virtues that you just won't be able to attain. You won't be able to be very magnificent going around fitting out ships for the Athenian navy and putting on plays and so on. But you you will still be able to be generous. You'll be able to give away small amounts of money at the right time and in the right way and so on. Yeah, so I think the role of fortune or luck yeah. in Aristotle's ethics is, is a tricky one. And I do think that uh, certain recent scholars like Martha Nussbaum are on the right track when they say that we can understand ancient philosophy as, among other things, an, an attempt to describe a way of life which is free from luck. And I think Socrates himself provides that, and it's one of the reasons he's so cheerful at the end of the apology. You know, he's going to die, but it doesn't matter, because he'll still, be, he'll still have lived the best life that was possible for him in those circumstances. You're immune from luck in that way, but luck will come in, insofar as you will be born into a certain gender, perhaps, or you'll be born into a certain family with a certain amount of wealth, and that will uh, determine whether you, you can flourish or not. It's just the way it is. Can I come back to you, Sophia? We haven't said anything, really, about one of the things that struck me quite a lot was friendship and the importance of friendship, the crucial importance of friendship. Can you develop that? Aristotle says nobody would choose to live without friends, even if they had every other good. And it turns out that friendship is not just important to happiness, it's necessary for happiness. There's a background in the sense that humans are social animals. If you had a human being on her own, that wouldn't be a human. It would either be a beast or a god. Humans have to live together. They live together in political communities, and political communities club together to think about what is good for the what is the common good but Aristotle also thinks that happiness will make is very intertwined with virtue and although I agree with Roger that the book seems to be written for individuals to read I don't think friendship is left out even from the beginning you are being virtuous towards other people and a lot of those people are people you have deep affectionate ties towards when you are making decisions, you are discussing your values, you're discussing the particular situation with the people around you who, who you care about. And Aristotle describes these friendships, these very important friendships, he terms character friendships, as complete. These are complete friendships. And in these kinds of friendships, the friend is another self. So that sounds like it could be selfish. You're like your friend because it's a bit like you and you like quite like being um, somebody who's like you. Well, Aristotle is very clear that there's a distinction between being selfish and having self-love. His theory is not a selfless one. It's not you give up yourself to, to do something for your friend. You hold on to yourself. You like and care about yourself because you are a good person. Yourself is really your rational part, the part of you that makes decisions. This is expressive of your character. And you value your friend in exactly the same way. And actually, you end up being somewhat intertwined with your friend because you imagine you spend your days together, he says. You spend your days together with your friend. You live together in some sense. And as you do that, you're talking about the things that you care about, the things that are important in your life, the difficult and complex decisions that you're making on a daily basis. And because of that, sometimes your friend makes a decision and uh, acts in a certain way that reflects on you because you talked about those things, you've made that decision together. So he says something like, in a way, your friend's actions are your actions, are, are part of your decision making. You actually become better as well because your friends help you to deliberate. So your friends are a way in which you develop your virtues. 
And you? It's fascinating. I, 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 for me, uh, books eight and nine on friendship are some of the most beautiful parts of the ethics. I find them really rich study of the different kinds of friendship. You know, real friendship when it's based between two good people who care for each other's good for their own sake because they appreciate each other's goodness. And he contrasts that with friendships based on utility or pleasure, which are not going to stand the test of time. One of the reasons it fascinates me is when we get to book 10, and we've all three of us have been touching on this, we've had this really rich, complex, nuanced account for nine books of what it's like to be an ethically wise and good person in a community. And the, using Phronimus, using our practical reason. And then in books, in book 10, chapter 7 and 8, he suddenly says, well, actually, Theoria, contemplative wisdom, uh, is superior to practical wisdom because contemplative wisdom is directed at superior objects. They are eternal and they're the kind of objects that God thinks about and that the theory or our capacity for contemplation is the divine bit in us and that we should try to imitate God. And then you think, well... What he's saying when he's using the word God, is he meaning gods? Uh, he sometimes talks of the, the gods in the Greek pantheon as does Plato, but as far as... In my opinion, both Plato and Aristotle believe in a single God. For Aristotle says elsewhere that God is pure active thought thinking itself, so not very like the Greek pantheon. And you think, where, where do friends come into this? Now, he does say, well, it's quite hard to contemplate by yourself for very long. You can do it better with friends. Um, but it's still... You know, an interesting tension. A lot has been written about whether the two can be combined. In, in Plato, the philosopher rulers do have to go back down in the, to the cave, whether they like it or not, and rule it. Can you exercise theoria, contemplative wisdom, while you're running the state? That's an interesting question. For me, it sets off a fascinating thread in the whole of Western thought about whether it's better to try to imitate God and inevitably fail, because of course we can't be God, or to be the, the best human that we can be and succeed at that. And Aristotle himself quotes uh, some lines from the lyric poet Pindar, mortals should think mortal thoughts. Uh, it's hubristic, it's arrogant to try to be God, just stick to your human realm. And that tension we we see it right the way through you've got is it thomas akempis i think in the middle ages who writes the imitation of christ you've got that thread and then didn't alexander pope write know then thyself presume not god to scan the proper study of mankind is man so you've got this do you try to imitate god and transcend your normal human limits or do you stick within your human limits and be successful or a third option which interests me is it actually part of our humanity to try to transcend our human limits and and for me that's one of the most absorbing questions in the ethics thank you roger um how important has his work been over the last two and a half thousand years just a short, just an easy one. Probably about eight. Um, it's been hugely important because he himself has been such an important thinker. You probably know that uh, Dante calls him the master of those who know. And r roughly speaking, if you did want to find something out or know something before the scientific revolution, you went and looked it up in Aristotle. Now, in, in science, si since that time, it, his his works have been less significant, though it's worth remembering, I think this is true, that in William Harvey's treatise on the circulation of blood, Aristotle gets more mentions than anybody else. But nevertheless, I mean, you won't find Aristotle on the, the reading list for most people studying science in university now. But the, the ethics are independent, to some extent, of his scientific views. So though, as it were, the, the philosophy is there in the background and explains why the ethics survived as well, I mean, the whole story was there, I think uh, the ethics can be looked at independently of the background philosophical theory, and that's why people... Uh, have continued reading it till now Sophia, which we, we're towards the end now, which of these ideas resonate most with contemporary philosophers? In the past 60 or so years 
people in contemporary analytic philosophy, analytic ethics, have been going back to Aristotle. There's been a movement towards contemporary virtue theory and virtue ethics. And this was driven in part by the dissatisfaction with philosophical ethics during the last century, when it seemed to get further and further away from people's feelings, agency, character, moral psychology, and to centre more in abstract duties and rules, which kind of left character and personality out of the story. And people like uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Alistair McIntyre have been bringing back the virtues in this movement, it has movement has become neo-Aristotelian. So some of uh, Aristotle's actual views are sort of watered down. I mean, some of the more demanding parts of his theory, for example, that in order to be virtuous, you must have all of the virtues and practical wisdom. So you have to have the, that intellectual virtue as well as all of the character virtues in order to be happy and lead a good life. That seems so demanding that some neo-Aristotelian thinkers have fo focused more on the virtues, thinking about how we can make our lives go well by cultivating the virtues, by training our feelings, and we'll say things like, well, if you're trying to figure out the right thing to do, a good question might be, is it the virtuous thing to do? Or you might think, what would the virtuous person do in this particular situation? Finally, Andrew, do you think it, that's, that's making it much more relevant than most people would think it would be, his ideas? Do you think they are still relevant and worked through these at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, things, it's such a rich text. We, there are so many important things we've not even had time to discuss yet. So his account of voluntary and involuntary action and moral responsibilities it is hugely important in legal studies as, as well as in ethics. Very, very rich account of pleasure. He has a distinction between justice and equity, as far as I'm aware, and please, please do correct me, he's, he's the first person we know of in the West to distinguish justice from equity like that. So there, it, there's just full of riches. A small addition to that would be that Aristotle's philosophy gives us a way to think about a young person growing up in his or her community and learning how to be good from other people and from following their example and from listening to their teaching. And so he gives us a way to think about moral development and to think about communities as incredibly important to moral development. I would go along with that. I think moral education has pretty much dropped out of modern moral philosophy, and I think that's a great pity. It seems to be a serious and important question, how people become good. And another question that I think's dropped out, and which dominated ancient philosophy, is what Henry Sidgwick, the great Cambridge philosopher, called the profoundest problem of ethics, which is how does morality or virtue relate to happiness? Aristotle's answer is uh, they're the same philosophers now usually don't have an answer because they don't think about it well thank you all very much thank you angie hobbs roger crisp and sophia connell and to our studio engineer jackie marjum next week the raids of the barbary corsairs and how right up to the 19th century they changed life from the mediterranean to the english channel and beyond thanks for listening and the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I'm, I ask the question, which is the only question I'm going to ask, is what did we leave out that you would like to have been included? Start with you, Roger. Well, uh, we've mentioned pleasure, but I think there might be a bit more to say about it because I, I find Aristotle's view on pleasure peculiar I think he is, he's trying to continue the Socratic project. He's trying to show that virtue is the only thing that's worth having, the only thing that will make you happy, and vice, in fact, will make you unhappy. It's, just that it's not just that it's not valuable, it's worth not having it. And by being vicious and doing vicious things, you are making your life worse. Now, one obvious thing that the, the vicious person might say is, oh, well, I get a lot of pleasure out of being a sadist or being extremely powerful and getting people to do what, do what I want them to do and so on. And on my reading of Aristotle, he thinks that vicious people don't ex really experience pleasure. It's not true pleasure. So for him, pleasantness is a bit like what philosophers have called a secondary quality. 
right? So if somebody says a pillar box is green, you're going to say, no, it's not. You know, you, you're, you're not able to detect that it's, uh, it's really red and you're kind of blind to that aspect of it. I think he would also say to the vicious person, you think you're experiencing pleasure when you're being horrible to other people. That's not pleasure. That's like somebody who is in a fever saying that the glass of lemonade they've been given is bitter. They're just getting it wrong. I mean, that he is picking up from Republic Book 9, isn't he? You know, that, 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 that pleasures are objective. You, you, you may think you're feeling pleasure, but you've got it wrong. And that seems to us quite odd. We might say that's not a good source of pleasure, or you'd have a better, more flourishing life if you didn't get your pleasure from those sources. But yeah, no, fascinating. I just had a small thing to add about pleasure, which is I think that Aristotle is thinking on in zoological ways about pleasure as well. So if you see an animal leading the kind of life that that animal characteristically leads, then pleasure will uh, supervene on that. They, uh, there'll be a proper pleasure that's natural. And he applies this to humans as well. So when we are reasoning correctly, when we're acting virtuously, that's the proper pleasure of being human. And there's a lot more we can say about voluntary and involuntary actions, isn't there? Because it's such a subtle discussion. I really recommend people read it. So he says if actions are involuntary, if they're through force, an external force, or if they're done through ignorance. But then he makes a lot of dis very subtle distinctions between which kinds of ignorance we can be excused and which kind of ignorance are our fault because we should have known that law because it was easy to find it out there's that's something we should have known and and there's an interesting discussion of drunkenness and that you know the, the person who does something wrong when they're drunk they may not be aware of what they're doing but it's kind of doubly their fault because they chose to get drunk yeah. so it's <laughs> and I, I think what's so remarkable about it is that you know, we tend to to read these discussions as if they were written yesterday, but they were written a very long time ago by, by somebody who doesn't have the conceptual distinctions we now have. He is inventing philosophy yeah. as he goes along. He's taking inspiration from the legal system of the time, but he, he's, he's inventing legal theory. He's inventing the theory of justice. You know, it's, and, it's remarkable. And economic theory. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's an extraordinary chapter on money, and, you know, what, what, is it, what is anything worth? Well, it's worth what people want to pay for it it's worth demand what's but demand as represented by money so money is simply the representation doesn't have any yeah money value. is simply the representation of demand and it's demand that's the common people currency get, when people can get that wrong people who think that money itself has value yeah. and they are yeah. um, going to go wrong um, i wanted to bring up the topic of weakness of will Aristotle is arguing against Socrates in some ways because Socrates says people um, never knowingly do wrong. So when you do something wrong, that's just a case of ignorance. And, and Aristotle thinks that looking around, you see a lot of people who make a judgment to do the right thing. They make the right decision uh, in some sense, and then they do the wrong thing. Um, and this is just such a widespread phenomena that he thinks is really important that we try to get to grips with it. But it is quite difficult for him because if you remember, when you make a decision, you have that deliberative process. At the end of the deliberative process, you discover the right thing. And he says you kind of immediately want to do that thing. So what's stopping you? Why do you suddenly do the wrong thing? He explains it in terms of a different set of wrong reasons coming in because your judgment has been clouded by emotions and irrational feelings. Um, he has quite a sophisticated view that's still pretty important in the literature on uh, weakness of will. I think so. And he, and he ends up in a way partly agreeing with Socrates, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He, yes. he, he takes issue with Socrates and the Protagoras who says no one does wrong willingly. And he says, well, of course, that's nonsense. We see people doing wrong willingly all the time. But then he ends up and says, well, actually, these people, they, they're not actually going against their ultimate knowledge of first principles what's happened is their desire has clouded their attention to their particular situation and they're not putting that knowledge into practice and he even admits doesn't I, I think I remember he admits that actually deep down 
Socrates is right that full knowledge can't be overwritten. The, the problem is that we don't put that full knowledge into practice. We're not attending to it. The other thing it makes us aware of is how important it is that your feelings and your attitudes are correct because you can have all made all the right decisions, have all the right thoughts, uh, but you're going to keep tripping up if you have the wrong attitudes and feelings. And so this sense of training your feelings repeating the right kinds of actions until you feel the right things. Uh, because he says that the person with weakness of will is curable, but he, and he recommends that they just repeat the right things until they like them, which I think works to a certain extent, but once you re reach a certain age, it's very hard to backtrack and change your attitudes and feelings. And he'd never experienced chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one thing to his credit is that he, unlike Socrates, he addresses the rather obvious fact that people very often, when they're doing something that they know is worse for themselves, so being weak-willed, say, I know this is worse for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. And he explains that by saying, well, that, that's just like somebody who's acting. They don't really mean it. And again, well, this is... You know they don't really mean it. In some sense, they don't mean it. It's not because they in haven't really come to terms with it. And, and, I mean, the, what you just said is that that's yeah. what most people, um, certainly over, over the last century or so, have thought. I mean, it's just not a very good theory of weakness of will because we know true weakness of will happens. Mm. But take this example. I mean, t take, take somebody who's advised by their GP to stop smoking. And they just go on doing it. I know it's worse for me and so on. And then the GP says, look, I'm going to take you to... Um, a, a ward in the local hospital where you'll see people suffering from the sorts of respiratory bronchial conditions and so on that I said you're going to get if you smoke you can imagine that person after the visit saying wow now I, I really understand what this smoking is doing for me I really know that it's worse for me mm. Mm. Yes, in I a way that I didn't before I can still imagine that person saying but I'm going to have a fag <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. And Aristotle has an insight into that kind of psychology. There, there just this just will happen all over the place, and this is a, a, a big issue that we need to deal with, that we need to take on board. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, pleasure would kick in there because right. somebody would say, I, get, "I enjoy smoking so much that I'm going to keep doing it, even if you tell me it knocks a year or two off my life. I don't care. I'm having another cigarette." Yeah. And Aristotle might say, well, you call that pleasure, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's not worth having. Mm. I think Simon, our producer, is about to enter with an important announcement. Does anyone want your coffee? Oh, tea would be lovely. Tea, Thank tea you. please. A herbal tea, peppermint yes. or something like Captain, that? Yep, Thank lovely. you. Tea, ordinary and tea. And a bit more water, please. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. It was about 2.30 in the morning. And every time in that moment of waking, I would see the man standing in the corner. It's here. Uncanny. Season three. She was just walking, non-responsive, without talking, without blinking. It seemed like something has just taken over. Terrifying real-life encounters with the supernatural. What I saw in that house frightens me, and I wish I'd never seen it. Listen on BBC Sounds, if you dare. If you're listening to this episode, then I'd guess that you're pretty into history. And if you're after more fascinating stories from the past on everything from medieval peasants to World War II pilots, then why not check out the History Extra podcast? Made by the team behind BBC History magazine, History Extra brings you conversations with the world's leading historians. Subscribe for fresh takes on history's most famous figures and compelling deep dives into lesser-known events. Just search for History Extra to listen wherever you get your podcasts.